We are in 2 Peter chapter 3 tonight, and we need to make a couple comments, though, about 2 Peter chapter 2, just to review. If you look at 2 Peter, perhaps in some of your Bibles, you can see the entire letter on two pages, on two opposing pages. Mine is almost that way, except for just a couple little paragraphs that spill over onto the third page, but we're talking about a fairly short letter And then chapter 2 in that letter is fairly long, and it talks about one topic. That's the topic of of false prophets and false teachers. So chapter 2 is quite long, and so so if you think about whenever someone's writing a letter to you, you receive that letter, you can tell, you can pick up some signals about their main point about what they're trying to impress upon you by how much time they spend on each topic, right? So if someone writes a one-page letter and two-thirds of the page is about their grandchild or something like that, you can tell what they're very excited about and what they're trying to to, uh, convey to you. And in the same way, Peter's letter here, it's a a fairly short letter, and so much of it is, is focused on pure teaching and right doctrine and how the church is able to avoid uh, false teaching. And so that's an important uh, point to remember as we, as we pivot uh, to chapter 3. So, so it's important, if you see here on the, on the paper, it's important to remember that the church's pure doctrine is the prime concern of much of the New Testament. In 1 Timothy, think about 1 Timothy, a book that is on the church and its proper ordering. It begins with these words. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In the same way, Paul, uh, when he's giving his instructions to, to Titus on the island of Crete, and now you think about the, the, the context here, Titus is there at a church plant. And he's, uh, he, Paul tells him to appoint elders in each city as I directed and he gives the qualifications. Then he said, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So in other words, the prime trust of the church, the church's main goal is to guard sound doctrine. I had a conversation just today with someone who was, who was talking to me about, um, about these words from God that this person receives. And, and this person was talking about their, their experience with God, saying that, that God allows this person to see things on the street that other people can't see. And that God tells them certain things and, and tells them to go and do and go to say certain things. You know, now, uh, you know, friends, I'm, I'm not saying that God is, is incapable of doing this. But as we were in this conversation, I was trying to gently just explain, uh, you know, that I said, 
my concern is I, is I think that the scriptures are kind of the guidelines. The scriptures set us up to teach us what we should expect God to lead us to believe. And when I said those words, this person looked at me and started shaking the head. Friends, th- this, this is dangerous. Like, w- w- when you believe that God can give you revelation apart from the Bible, then we wander off into all kinds of strange things. And then who's to say if, if God's telling you something, God's telling me something? The Scriptures are our standard. And if we don't stand on the Scriptures, then, I mean, friends, it's just all bets are off. Then it's just what's, what God is telling you versus what God is telling me versus what God is telling this person back here. We must hold fast to the Scriptures. We must know the Scriptures. And, and this is why Peter, I believe, spends so much time in this book talking about this because the church is the guardian of pure doctrine. And then he pivots. And he says this in chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. So is this giving off a signal in your mind? Causing you to think back to chapter 1 where there was this, this word repetition, knowledge and reminder, knowledge and reminder in chapter 1. In chapter 3, Peter comes back to it. And he says, Rem- reminder and remember. He's, he's giving us the sense that the thrust of Scripture is, is not that we should be mining around, digging for new truths. We should be going to God, asking Him to show us what He has already revealed in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the deposit of, of what we are to believe and they, and they are what provide safety to us. And so he's, he's saying, you know, don't venture off into new things or don't, there's actually a command in Scripture, don't, don't go beyond what is written. Instead, he's saying, in both of them, I am stirring, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, as all things are continuing, as, as they were from the beginning of creation, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So, what he's talking about here is, is the end times. And no subject is more controversial than the end times. I mean, there are almost as many theories and, and almost as many uh, philosophies about the end times as, as there are uh, churches and denominations. And, um, and in fact, I don't, I don't pretend to have any unique wisdom about that question. But I will say this. We know this to be certain from Scripture, that that day is coming. And that day will come quickly. That final day will come quickly. So what P- 
Peter is saying is that since that final day is coming, remember what is true. Hold fast to the truth. He says, I'm trying to stir you up by way of reminder. Remember what is true. It teaches that the, the, this teaches us that the most important thing in our day is faithfulness to what has been told to us. Remember the, the words of, of, of Paul when he's talking to the Galatians. He's addressing, uh, let's see, he's addressing the congregation here. Grace and peace to you, he says, oh, this Paul and apostle, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and, and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be anathema. Let him be a curse. And then he repeats it as if we didn't get it. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And this is, seems to be the sober, serious note that Peter wants to end his letter on. Jude, of course, says that there is the faith, a definite article, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Deuteronomy 6 talks about how we should take this one Lord, one faith, one baptism and, and, and entrust it to our children. Our training should be intentional. These are serious matters. We as the church are charged with the responsibility to teach our children the pure doctrine of the Bible. And we must remind ourselves, as Peter reminds his hearers here, we must remind ourselves of what is true because in the final days, in the last days, there will be scoffers. You know what a scoffer is, right? You know what it means to scoff. <laughs> There's a scoff. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, scoffing about the true doctrine. The things that we would believe will be ridiculed. And it will become more difficult to hold to them. What Peter's telling them, this is a word about social pressure. He says, hold fast, hold fast to the pure doctrine because there will be people, scoffers, that will make it difficult to hold to. He says the same thing or something similar in 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in the kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears... They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. See, this is an older pastor talking to a younger pastor, but it's a word that's apt for all believers. Be ready 
in season and out of season, and expect, expect there to be some who go and find the teachers that teach them what they already want to hear. Now, all of this talk about the last days, I need to qualify that just a little bit because when we talk about the end is near and the, and the last days and the end of time, you, you might get pictures in your mind of someone walking around with a picket sign, the end is near, you know, blaring some kind of music and, and encouraging people to do this or that. Here's, here's the thing, here's a, I've given you a little picture here as best I can do on art on my computer and put it here. Friends, we, in a sense, I don't think that, I, don't, I do not believe that Christians should spend a lot of their energy trying to read the tea leaves of what's happening in current events to try to figure out when the day is going to be, right? I think that we should live as if the day is going to be tomorrow. We should share the gospel as if the day is going to be tomorrow. We should walk in repentance before the Lord as if the Lord could come back tomorrow because I believe that He could. Ever since the cross of Jesus Christ, we have been in the last days. Okay? I think that's the way that we should look at it. You see this, this little time, if you're, if you're kind of looking at it from, from left to right, the dark black line is kind of like time. And it's moving along, moving along until we get to the cross. And then we get to the cross, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Jesus ascends up into heaven. And it's almost like time continues, but it, it just starts going up. And it's waiting to fall over into, into eternity. Does that, does that make sense? When Christ returns, you see my little stick man up there in the, in the top left? That's like Jesus returning. Okay, so Jesus was here at the cross. We are kind of in between those two little vertical lines where, where time is going on, but we are in the last days. We are in the last days, and we have been ever since Jesus ascended into heaven. So we're in this strange little period of time where we get the benefit of being able to look back on the cross knowing its fullness as, as much as we can this side of heaven. And we have a period of time where we're able to share the gospel with others before the return of Christ or before we, we die. If we continue in verses 8 through 10, it says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." You know, I love how the King James says this. God is not slack concerning His promise. That reminds me of what my dad would have, would have told me as a young person. Son, don't be slack. You know, stop slacking off. You know, no slacking around here. Time does not appear to us the way that it does to God. God is not slow. He is not slack concerning his promise the reason that god is tarrying peter tells us has a motivation of love and patience desiring to gather in to the fold all who will believe and that is why we share the gospel that is why we much we must make hay while the sun shines 
in these twilight days that God has given us on the earth. So, no matter your view of the end times, the final day will come quickly. Verse 10 reminds us this, reminds us of this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The final day will result in a, in a destruction of the world as we know it. This is a, a necessary act. That whenever, whenever the scriptures speak about fire, there's this undertone of destruction, but there's also this undertone of purifying. Fire has a purifying effect as well sets the stage for the recreation that will occur if you look in the next few verses. So I just need to pause here and try to highlight something that I'm trying to say. At the end of the world, there is a kind of destruction that will take place, but that's not the final word. There's also a recreation, a, a, a renewing of everything to bring it back almost, or, or, or not almost, but to bring it back to the perfection that was there in Eden, to bring it back to an Edenic state. And you'll see that in the next couple of verses. Look what it says here in verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, li- in lives? I'm sorry, goodness. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's this sense in which, yes, all of the evil that we see now will come to an end, but there is something new that is coming. There is a new heaven and a new earth. If all we think is coming is destruction, then that leads to a certain kind of life. But if there is a renewal of all things, and we now, because we live in between those two little vertical lines, we are being now renewed, we are being transformed now from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians tells us, then that means that God is already, in a sense, beginning this work in us of renewing us. And one day, when that final day comes, we will be part as well of that new creation that involves not only people, but the renewal of his whole world. I, I hesitate to give you a spoiler alert, but I'm preaching on Sunday on Psalm 96. And so I'm, I'm taking a little break from, from John just for a Sunday here. But this psalm talks about singing a new song to the Lord. And then it talks about letting the nations know, telling them so so that they may hear of God's glory. And then at the end, it says this, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And then listen to the kind of language that comes here at the end. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. 
Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the, the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. You see how there's part of, part of God's plan in salvation is not simply to save individual sinners, although that is central. What God is also doing is a work to recreate everything so that all of His creation, which is now broken, all of His creation gives Him the glory that He created it to give. So much so that the psalmist, in this kind of poetic way, can speak of the trees giving God praise and the sea roaring His praise. Isn't that a beautiful image of what's going to happen when God create, recreates the world, I think that's beautiful. Here's a little bit of application. Um, by the way, we've we got we to gotta revisit a couple of verses here. Look at how Peter ties a bow on everything in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, in other words, since the end of the world is coming, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? He's, he's saying that the rationale for godly living, the rationale for holy living is somehow connected to what God is doing in recreating His whole world and in saving us now. Here, here's a little, a little background. In the first century, there was a group called the Gnostics. And they taught that the body and the soul were kind of like enemies of one another. Right? You were really a soul and you were trapped in a body, is what they taught. And the body was bad, the soul was good, the body was bad, and so you could kind of dispense with the body. The, the goal was to be free from this body. We are really a soul. They didn't have a doctrine of the resurrection. They didn't have a doctrine of the recreation of all things. You see, friends, when we die... If, 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 if I, and I'm praying this doesn't happen, but if I go to be with the Lord tonight and, and, and my body goes into the grave and my, my spirit is with God, one day when Jesus returns at the resurrection, at the final resurrection, my body will be raised, our bodies will be raised immortal. We, God has a view of our bodies Give us new bodies on that resurrection day. So there's this sense, there's this Christian idea that the body has value. I think we should probably live as if that's true in the way that we care for our bodies. The, the, the Bible has this view that the body is important to God. But for the Gnostics, that wasn't the case. The body was like a, it was like a shell that you just kind of wore for a number of years until you died. And so because of this, they thought it was basically disposable. They taught that sexual immorality was okay because the body doesn't really matter what you do with your body. That's something different from your soul, right? Your body, you do, do whatever you want to with. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul picks this up when he's talking about sexual immorality. He says this, all things are lawful for me, if, you, if you're looking at that in your Bibles or, or on this paper, that's kind of in its own little set of quote marks. 
And the reason is because that was a very common catchphrase. All things are lawful for me, right? So that's what people would have said on the streets of Corinth. All things are lawful for me. And then Paul replies, but not all things are helpful. He throws another one of these catchphrases in. All things are lawful for me. And Paul replies, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but it is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see the logic here? The body is part of what Christ purchased on the cross. In other words, yes, God is concerned with our heart and our soul. He's also concerned with what we do in our bodies. God will raise our bodies. Our, our bodies are connected to Christ We have become somehow connected to Him in a spiritual way. And that is why the one flesh union that God intended for man and woman in the garden is twisted by sexual immorality. That that lies about the the nature of God by, by kind of twisting or perverting this original way that His image bearers were to show His nature. So, anyway... What's the upshot of all this and how does it connect to 2 Peter? If I have lost you sufficiently by this point, here it is. If we believe simply that on the final day everything's going to be destroyed, then we might think like the Gnostics do. It doesn't really matter what I do with my body. But if we believe in a resurrection and a recreation, we will be driven to use our bodies for the Lord. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us to use our lives and our bodies and our memories and our, uh, our church to live as a redeemed people waiting on that final day. And I pray that he would find us faithful when he does return. Let's pray. Lord, we live in view of the imminent return of Jesus. Now, we don't know if that's going to be one year or another couple hundred. We don't know your designs and we don't presume to to have all of these things figured out. But we do know what your word says. And your word says that because we are living in the final days, our lifestyle should reflect a certain kind of godliness. 
that, that we are laborers in your household, working diligently until the master of the house should return. Lord, I pray that you would find us faithful when you do return. I pray that you would help us to, to strengthen our joints and strengthen our hands to, to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to share the message of the gospel in this community that you have entrusted us with. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for the families represented here that we would be effective, that you would make us effective in passing on the gospel, the pure doctrine of the Bible to the next generation. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.